Welcome to the Convertible Content Podcast, where we discuss content that's been converted from one medium to another. From toys to video games, plays to TV, books to film and back again, we share perspectives on enjoying the same content across media. So obvious for the adaptation to be centered around music, and so that's what he did, and it works, and it works very, very well. So let's dive right in to our topic for today. Before it was a movie with Gerard Butler and a stage musical with anthems by Andrew Lloyd Webber, and even before it was a novel by Gaston LaRue, the story behind The Phantom of the Opera stems from rumored occurrences in Paris in the late 1800s. Here's a fun fact for all our listeners. The underground lake actually exists. Yeah, isn't that crazy? And a little side note to that, I was reading that firefighters in Paris use it for training how to swim in the dark. So there's a lot other bonus fun fact. On the stage, Phantom of the Opera has taken billions of dollars at the box office, and it boasts the second longest residency on London's West End, 34 years, which is second only to Les Miserables. So today we get to talk about the Phantom of the Opera. And I'm pretty excited. I don't know about you, Jacob. This is a pretty, there's a lot to talk about. There is so much to discuss, I feel like, in terms of the Phantom of the Opera and the different adaptations that have come from this, the, the novel by Gaston LaRue, which we will discuss, of course. For me, the Phantom of the Opera has been something that I have really grown up with. I remember growing up listening to the soundtrack. My parents, they had the 1986 original Broadway cast soundtrack and there's just something about those melodies and we're going to get into this a lot later that just stays with you they're they're extremely well done and the music i think is probably the most well-known aspect of of the phantom of the opera and i think it's just fascinating to sort of think about the history of this piece and how it has evolved over time how you know it originated and we're going to talk about this right as rumors of an actual haunted opera house in France that was later converted into a serial novel, excuse me, a serial novel. And from that novel, we get various film adaptations. And then obviously we're going to be discussing the the musical, the stage production, which is phenomenal. And as you said, Aaron, is something that is known globally the world over. And so, yeah, we've got a lot of things to cover here. One of the things that I think as we discuss the different adaptations, it will be interesting to hear how each of us has come, like you mentioned through your parents and the soundtrack, how each of us has come to the story and, and how we've navigated through the different adaptations and how that's influenced our own perceptions of the story. But as always, we, we have to start with the original medium. I think that's kind of that's kind of our pattern. And so we're gonna start, even though I mentioned in the in the setup that it starts off as like myth and mystery, we're gonna start off with Gaston LaRue's novel, which for the time, this is very common, it, it was first published in a in a newspaper as a series. Now this was something that was done very very, um, it was very common, especially in the in the 1800s. But this was actually first published in a newspaper in in 1909, and then a few months later, it was compiled and published as a novel in uh, 1910. So let's start with the book. Have you read it? 
What did you think? What did you like about it? Aaron, to be completely honest, I mean, yeah, I read the book and I I read the book after I had grown up listening to the soundtrack, after I'd seen this stage production, and after the 2004 film had come okay. out, I had also already seen the 1943 film version at this point in my life before I had even picked up the book. And to be completely frank, I I didn't really enjoy the book. The reason why I finished it was really for nostalgia was because the Phantom of the Opera was uh, something, a story that I was familiar with. And we had a copy lying around at our house growing up. And I remember I was coming back from college. I was probably 21 at the time. And I decided to read it. Yeah. For me, the book is a tough read or it's tough for me to really enjoy it partly because it is a serialized book. Mm. And so for me, what that does is you have a lot of different interesting sections, sure, that play out through the book, but the pacing gets all wonky for me. The pacing, you know, you have this narrative arc that's set up in the beginning very well, and then throughout the story, you get Mm -hmm. random characters and narrative threads and things that feel like tangents that are happening throughout the story. And... To me, it was just sort of hard to keep right. a lot of really, I don't know, it was hard for me to keep some interest in the book, but I finished it anyway because I knew how it ended it. I sort of wanted to see what was going to happen with it. One aspect of the book that I think is a good elimination, wow. in, to be honest, in later adaptations was this inclusion of a character called the Persian mm-hmm. who has a few narrative chapters in there. And instead wow. of it, you know, of course I'm, talking about this in the year 2020 we know a lot yeah. more about diversity and inclusion now than mm-hmm. than you know gaston Leroux knew in 1910 but those yeah. chapters that are narrated <laughs> by the persian yeah. just feel kind of racist and they don't really add a whole lot to the story they bring this type of strange supernatural mysticism that he can interpret in regards to what the phantom is doing i think that doesn't really contribute a whole lot to the book in a lot of different ways but even just from a narrative standpoint, I mean, it's it's a massive tangent that felt really out of character for the book. The book otherwise, I think, was written fine. I mean, it's an interesting romance story. There's a lot of gothic elements in, in terms of gothic literature and gothic novels. And I think that might be sort of looking back on it, the highlight of the book is, hey, this is a great example of French mm-hmm. gothic novels that was distributed, you know, in serialized format. And there's some interesting things right, that we can talk right. about and look back and see in regards to how maybe somebody is talking about rumors and opera houses, uh, excuse me, rumors of the Phantom in an opera house and how that sort of plays out in the creative imagination of Gaston Leroux. But other than that, I, I don't know. I don't think the book is that great. I think it's fine, I guess. There's some weird pacing, weird elements and a lot of tangents in there that really just didn't suit my tastes. Right. I can definitely relate to that. Something, another tendency that these, this period, and again, I think it's related to the, the serialization in the newspapers, <clears throat> pardon me, is the idea that the story is told through papers that have been found. You, you see this repeated in, in other stories as well. And I think it presents, it's an interesting plot device, but at the same time, as you're mentioning, we're being presented with information from all these different sources. And it's almost like that's not, it's not necessary to do that just to add like changes of voice and things like that. 
So I, I can definitely see where you're coming from. Well, one thing that I think is interesting, and this will relate forward in our episode as we talk about the the different adaptations, but something that's interesting that I noticed in the book is how the book can jump in time and space. And this is relevant to just books in general. And they don't have to consider, you know, um, changes in costumes or sets and movies can do that too. But if we, this is going to be relevant as we're talking through the stage production of the Phantom of the Opera, there are things that the book can do that a stage production can't do as easily, especially if they've got to worry about time constraints. It's interesting because you see that play out in the book where we get a lot more detail about Christine's father in the form of a flashback. And in in the stage production and in the movie adaptation, that's presented as a, as a flashback. Uh, or it, Well, sorry, in the movie, it's presented as a flashback. In the stage production, it's given, it's given as exposition in, in conversations. But that, I think, is, is an interesting uh, advantage that the book has, that it can do that. It can jump around to different time periods and give you background information. I would agree with you as well, though, that it jumps around too much and tries to do too much with too many people. With that being said, we, we've talked about the book. I think we want to dedicate as much time as possible, I, I think, to s- some of the adaptations because... As I mentioned in the setup, the stage production is the most well-known version of this story. It is, it's been seen by like millions, hundreds of millions of people actually. And I know you've seen it, I've seen the stage production. So we're going to put the the book aside, and this is maybe earlier than we've done in our other episodes, but we're going to put the original medium aside and then focus on some of the adapted media. So uh, in preparation for today, I, I have a, a book called A Theory of Adaptation by Linda Hutchin. And in that book, she, she talks about the process of moving from print to stage. She highlights it for having specific challenges. So words written on a page, they need to be performed. And a novel doesn't give any instruction. It just gives you the words. I, it can portray so-and-so said angrily so that you do get some indication but most of the time you're not getting instruction on how how the words are said like the tones the gestures the moods directors and performers on the stage when they're adapting this they have to put that information behind the words most of the time so they're putting they're putting the emotion behind the words on the page so what are some ways as we start to think about stage production, what are some ways that performance can be used to pr- portray the emotion of the written word? So something that I think is is really maybe one of the things that sets back written narratives, something that, that can be really problematic, I feel like, in novels when it comes to dialogue especially, there are these little tags that are used. For example, he says, she said, he mm-hmm. yelled, you know, they did angrily, etc. after a piece right. of dialogue, after something has been said. Those little tags, I feel like if they're overused, they can really bog down a dialogue, especially extended dialogue in novels. And mm. sometimes, of course, when you have an extended conversation, you know, writers will drop those because they do start bogging down the conversation and then the person gets lost. You know, the reader gets r- lost. And so 
what performance has, I think, as in terms of an advantage over novels when it comes right. to conversation is that they can really get to use this physicality in performance. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes people interpret this as theater being over dramatic or over exaggerated. I mean, but please keep in mind, right? These performers, they have to make a gesture that the people in the very back of the auditorium are going to be able to understand and interpret. And I think there's something very physical about feeling the organically produced sound waves of a human being's voice being projected out into an audience and you being able to feel that and hear that, you know, there's some sort of physicality there that I think that helps resonate with us. And we feel that sort of communication between actors on stage in a different way. I think that stage performers and directors of theater, right? They have an amazing freedom that isn't offered necessarily in novels in which they can really express dialogue in particular in very beautiful, dramatic ways. And even when words aren't necessarily present, you know, that sort of physicality, being able to convey and communicate emotions through body language, I think is something that's incredibly powerful Mm -hmm. that the stage has to offer. And so I think that in these sort of small moments necessarily where in written work you would have, he said, she said, he replied, they yelled, whatever, etc. In those small moments on the stage, creative leads adapting novels, they get much more movement in the how, how these things are going to happen, how we're going to feel these mm-hmm. things as readers, how they're going to communicate it as performers. But what the novel retains is the why, right? And I'm, I'm now I'm applying this specifically to adapting novels to to the stage. And so my limited study of theater, the most boring plays to read are the ones with minimal action descriptions, cues, you know, notes in the margins necessarily from from the playwrights. But those are often the most thrilling to see live because the director and the performers, they get much more space to flex their creative muscles. Yeah. It is amazing, as you say, the hands and the the expressions and the, the body movements, they really can do that. If you think of, especially with Phantom of the Opera, it's, a, it's, it's quite a serious story. There's not a lot of comedy necessarily, but imagine one of the, the serious scenes with a lot of drama happening and one of the actors has a big old smile on their face. They would be so out of place. And so, as you're saying, they, they have this power, This they're free to interpret what's been written in such a way as to convey the meaning through their hands, through their gestures, through their face, through their body language. So let's jump right back in. We've talked about the book, the original medium. We've talked about that process of going from page to performance. What we're now going to talk about is the world-famous stage production, stage musical, with the wonderful music by Andrew Lloyd Webber. I've had the chance to see the stage musical on Broadway, and personally, I think it's something that everyone needs to experience once, whether it's Broadway, West End, or your local uh, your local production, your local um, theatre production. There is something so wonderful about being in an auditorium and hearing the music of this of the stage musical, it's it's like spine tingling almost. I remember I, watching it on Broadway, and I'd seen the movie. I was familiar with all the music, 
but there's something different when you're in that atmosphere. It, it's, it's electric. It really is a wonderful thing to hear that famous theme of the, uh, like fan, the Phantom's theme. It just, it gets you really excited. You know what's coming and there's a lot of emotion in that music. And something interesting as well, I count this as seeing it on the stage because it was, even though I was watching it on the, on the TV, but a few weeks ago, there's a, a YouTube channel called The Shows Must Go On. And that every weekend, they, during the because of the pandemic, they've been screening filmed versions of of stage productions, and they're mostly Andrew Lloyd Webber's work. So a few weeks ago, they did they showed a Phantom of the Opera, and I got to see it again, and it was just, I mean, it's not like being in the auditorium with full of people, but at the same time, it was still just wonderful to watch the artistry of the acting, the music, and how that just comes alive. And I mentioned before that, you know, the, the relationship between Christine and her father in the book, they they have a chapter where there's a lot of flashbacks. But in the in the stage production, that same information is, is being given to us in conversations. And then there's a couple lines in songs. So she, she sings, Father once spoke of an angel. That whole piece in the book is is from a flashback where you actually hear where you actually read the father talking about the angel of music and you you understand more in the book from reading the relationship between Christine and her father whereas in the stage production you're getting a lot of that emotion and connection that she had from the song wishing you were somehow here again which is a beautiful beautiful song one of the things that has struck me as well about the music of this production is it, as a singer, like trying to sing along is hard, but it, it almost seems like very technical and very, very difficult. Like it, these are very challenging songs to sing if you're a soprano. And it just, I think that is all part of the experience because Angela Lloyd Webber is very smart. He's put together a musical that contains multiple scenes from operas. So you're actually watching opera play out while you're watching this musical, you're you're listening to opera. It's almost like he made opera music accessible by putting it inside of a musical. With all that, oh, that's my kind of my experience with the the stage production. I'd love to hear more about your experience and any any kind of counterpoints you have to what I, all that all that stuff that I just verbally vomited. So I agree with you, Aaron. I think that what Andrew Lloyd Webber has done with this stage production of Phantom of the Opera is really quite remarkable because it does make some of that what's considered to be like elite high-end art opera much more accessible through a stage production as a musical. And so I absolutely agree with, with that parallel that you've made there. But something that I think is really rather ingenious of what Andrew Lloyd Webber does is with this story that I don't find to be incredibly remarkable, he uses his strengths as a playwright and as a composer, takes a look at this story that takes place in an opera house and decides to just go with that setting and, you know, it lends itself to to music, right? It's an opera house where music is being performed. And so that, I think, allows him right. some interesting creative freedom and flexibility in terms of what he wants to do with the story, how he wants that story to be told, and to really ramp up these things in the novel that really aren't that present, right? In the novel, we know that Christine Daae is this fantastic singer. We know that the Phantom has this interesting past in history with music and that he has this strange obsession with how the, the opera house should be run. 
and to have that actually come through the music more than anything, I think is really the best way to adapt the novel, right? You know, the podcast, of course, we're talking about adaptions and how things are adapted from one medium to another. And I think Andrew Lloyd Webber just saw the stars align and he was like, this is how you would adapt this story for the stage. You would adapt it as a musical. To adapt it mm-hmm. without music mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense, right? And this, I think, we'll talk about this, of course, when we get into some of the other film versions of this uh, of the story of the Phantom of the Opera. But a lot of films, they don't focus on that music as part of the narrative. They, of course, they have background music, and that is important to what's happening. But Andrew Lloyd Webber was very yeah. smart in taking the fact that it was an opera house and that the whole narrative mm-hmm. revolves around music and then making yeah. that center stage. And if I wonder if he just, you know, poured over this music or or how it sort of came to fruition, because yeah. that's yeah. what we remember of the play today. We remember the songs, right? And we remember that aspect of the Phantom of the Opera. And so I just think he capitalized on something that was so obvious. I think looking back at it, so obvious for the adaptation to be centered around music. And so that's what he did. And it works. And it works very, very well. The setting, he that translates very easily from the book and in some ways it's given more more life than it does have on the page because the production the production design is amazing when you're seeing the musical but then he's used music to translate the other piece the consciousness the the thoughts and the emotions and the feelings that that are in the book he's trans he's translated those through music and thinking about it now it makes perfect sense that he would have looked at this story because it takes place in an opera house. The, the story itself lends itself to a musical setting. And so, yeah, I, I totally agree with, with everything you're saying that the he's knocked it out of the park. He really has. I mean, the, the numbers speak for themselves. But what's so amazing is that experience that's created with the music in The Phantom of the Opera. So we're going we're gonna to talk now about... We've talked through the stage production. We're going to talk now about the film adaptation of the stage production. So we're getting another degree removed from the original work, which maybe should have mentioned on, on the, the stage musical. It's surpassed the original in, in terms of how widespread it is in society. Culturally, the Phantom of the Opera is, is very well known for the music, not necessarily for the novel. So with that in mind, we're going to talk now about the the movie version of the stage production. And it's worth mentioning that by the numbers, but also in just cultural under cultural awareness, people are more familiar with the music. They're not as familiar with the novel. So with that in mind, we're now thinking about taking that and then moving it on into a movie. What I found interesting with this movie is it was my it was actually my first experience with the story. I was culturally aware of the music, but this was my first exposure to the world or the setting of the Phantom of the Opera, the plot, as as well as seeing how all the music came together. Personally, I found it to be very enjoyable. I I, I liked it as well as I think it's more accessible maybe than the stage musical because to go see the the musical in the theater, you have to have the money, you have to be have the availability, and also you have to be in a location where it's being shown or it's being performed. So for me, it was very accessible to watch the movie, and 
I, I actually really enjoyed it. And I've seen all the other versions that we're talking about. I've seen through that lens, because that was my first real exposure to The Phantom of the Opera. I'm assuming you've seen it. What's your take on the movie? So the film came out in 2004. By that point, I had grown up listening to the soundtrack. I had seen the stage production and I had watched the 1943 version at home. So I was fairly, you know, familiar with the setting and the story and yeah, the music. It's so I sort of came into watching the the film. I don't know, just kind of interested to see what they were going to do with the story. I remember I I'm pretty sure I saw this in theaters when it came out. And, you know, I was a teenager at the time. And if I remember right, I went and I saw it with a bunch of friends. I felt like I had to pretend I didn't like it because it was a musical. (laughs) Wherein, in fact, I did really enjoy it because this is music I had grown up with. And I was was familiar with it and a lot, you know. So back then I enjoyed it. I think it's still a fun piece to watch now. Sometimes I think the film feels like it's getting quite long. And I think that's because the director and the creative leads behind the film, they really decided to try to flesh out the narrative. Like we've mentioned before in the stage production, a lot of the background, the flashbacks, a lot of the exposition is hidden in song. Right. Particularly when it comes to the context of what's happening and the history, the time period, etc. Whereas in this film, they take their time really to give you context. The film opens with a flash forward of the opera house in ruins and uh, you know last minute auction getting rid of some things and and then it has this you know beautiful highly cinematic you know moment when the dust is unveiled and the chandelier that had fallen is fixed and lighted again at the top of the ceiling and so there's this really beautiful moment there and so i think that for me is sort of a summary of what the film's like there's a lot of beautiful things that they've done technologically that is very possible in film that is extremely difficult or impossible to pull off on the stage it's so it's a very fun spectacle to watch it's fun watching the music happen it's fun watching the actors interact the different sets that they constructed the underground lake for example is extremely gothic and super over the top but that works i feel like the moments that are over-exaggerated, whether that be yeah. in costume or in the set design, it really works with what they're going for in the film. And I don't think the Phantom of the Opera as a film is really afraid of itself as sort of this romance mm-hmm. slash horror slash suspense story. They really embrace that in, yeah. in the camera work and in the directing and the acting. And I think that that it makes for a fine film. It's, it's like I say, it's a fun spectacle. Yeah. And I have to say the casting, I think, is what really pulls it all together. I think myself, along with everybody else who saw the film, was really blown away with Emmy Rossum's performance as Christine Daae. But what a fantastic performance there and a fantastic and technical singer as well. And so I think the casting really went a long way. Yeah, I I just think that it was it's a fun film. It's fun to watch. They really try to explore her Christine Daae's background her relationship with Raul and also more about her father and sort of why she is at this opera house in the first place. And so I think it's a fun, fun time. I agree. I I definitely agree because it can, it can do some things that the stage production can't, like you mentioned the sets that they're able to build, but also the way they're able to do the flashbacks. If you think about doing that, the stage, the stage production is, it's like two hours and 40 minutes long 
if they were to have to change sets a couple extra times, that adds up onto an already long production. And it's also time consuming, but also that's more money they have to spend on more sets and more changes and more costumes. Anyway, I think the movie is is like a happy medium where it can take some of the things that the book can do and some of the things that the stage production does and kind of bring them all together. Uh, some Something else I thought was interesting that you brought up was the casting, because I... I Going back in my mind, more than half of my life to when this came out, I do remember there being some consternation at the casting of Gerard Butler as the Phantom because he's not known as a singer. I completely agree with you about Emmy Rossum. And in doing research for this episode, she was 18 at the time. Breakout role, completely, she nailed it as, as Christine. Something else I thought was interesting I wasn't aware of, Patrick Wilson, who in the world of 2020, you'll know him as, um, I, I believe it's it's Orm from Aquaman, the bad guy. That's that's who plays Raul. And I didn't know this that when I watched the movie. I didn't know it until I was researching for this episode. He actually had a very successful career on Broadway prior to becoming more of a film actor. But I will never see Orm in Aquaman the same having made that connection to uh, Phantom of the Opera and his background in Broadway, just completely changed my perspective. But here, here's an interesting, something I found as I was researching the casting. So er, they had offered the role of the Phantom to Hugh Jackman, which he has, he has gone on to take the lead in a few musicals of note, but he wasn't able to do it because he had a, a scheduling conflict for a movie called Van Helsing, which wasn't wasn't great. Like I think he made a wrong choice there. He should have he should have gone for Phantom instead. That being said, I think Gerard Butler he did a great job, and he he is kind of like that rock and roll star guy. Like he he fits that that model pretty well. I just think there were better singers. Is all. But the other the other interesting casting thing I found when I was researching is that the role of Christine was offered to Anne Hathaway originally, who is classically trained. Yeah. And she had a conflict with because she was filming The Princess Diaries 2. So isn't that fascinating? So we could have had Phantom of the Opera with Hugh Jackman and Anne Hathaway opposite each other. It didn't happen. But I guess the stars were aligned because a few years later we got those two opposite each other in Les Mis. And and both were nominated for Oscars and, and Anne Hathaway actually won. But I just thought that was really interesting that those two actors were were the first to be offered those roles. It just didn't work out. I'm happy with, with what we got, particularly, as you mentioned, Emmy Rossum. But it just is kind of fun to think about how would that have trans translated to the movie from the stage production with those slightly different casting choices. I think it, I think it's worth imagining that for a second, but at the same time, completely agree. They did a great job with the movie, and it, it as I said earlier, it marries between the stage production and the the novel really well. This is an interesting question. As far as I know, Hugh Jackman and Anne Hathaway, you mentioned this about Anne Hathaway, that she's classically trained as a singer, but I think both of them had more stage acting experience 
prior to 2004 when the film was mm-hmm. released than Gerard Butler and Emmy Rossum. I think what that would have done had they been cast in those roles is they would have brought a more theatrical performance to their characters. I think this is something that we actually see a lot more, maybe something that's not quite, you know, isn't discussed very often, is that actors with a lot of stage acting experience, when they do something for camera you know for the screen i feel Mm -hmm. like that sort of experience carries over in a way that's very physical and the example that i am thinking of is alan rickman who had a lot of stage acting experience prior to getting his role as the main antagonist the villain in die hard but i'm actually thinking right now of his um his uh he was playing the sheriff of nottingham and that robin hood adaptation with the american kevin costner accent that's a completely other maybe we did cover that adaptation later but thinking about his performance there is very theatrical it's very physical i think that's something that hugh jackman and Anne brought excuse me i think that's something that hugh jackman and Anne hathaway would have brought to this film so i think the casting of gerard butler and emmy rossum you know because their backgrounds and their experiences in acting were very different they brought something else to the screen mm-hmm. um, in terms of how they were going to prefer, in terms of how they were going to portray their acting and their how they were just going to conduct their performances and work with the director. So I don't think that either pairing is inherently better than the other, but I do think they would have changed. I do think it would have changed the tone and feel and overall performance within the film had mm-hmm. one pairing been selected over the other right and this is of course all speculative we don't get to know but i did want to say that i think something really strong about this film is how reciprocal sort of this film is Mm -hmm. seeing this film i think pushes audience members to want to see the play right and i think this is sort of the genius of as i've already mentioned of andrew lloyd weber choosing this story to convert or adapt into a musical that because of where it takes place and how it's organized, it sort of feeds, will probably feed the audience back to seeing the play because they want to see how it looks on stage after seeing the spectacle that is the film. I think you're right. It goes back the other way that what would this look like if I went and saw it on, on the stage because I really liked the movie. So I think like for me as a teenager, it exposed me to the story and the music in a way that made me interested to to and I did go see it as in my 20s on Broadway and that was a wonderful experience and I would highly recommend it what I would like to do as we've now talked about probably the two most well-known adaptations of the story we're gonna wrap up by talking about two maybe lesser known depending on your experience uh, listener but the first one I'll, I'll touch on briefly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one because it, well, I didn't enjoy it, to be honest. It was, so it's so we mentioned at the beginning that this was published as a novel. This story was published as a novel in 1910. And in 1925, so only 15 years later, it was adapted as a silent movie. And this is actually available on Amazon Prime Video. So if you have Amazon Prime, you can go and watch this if you want, if you dare. I, I do, I haven't really watched silent movies before and I don't think I ever will again because I, and I, I hate saying that because I love, I love all forms of art, but I had a really hard time watching, uh, 
black and white pictures of people talking for a while and then it cuts to a card of like one sentence it's almost like it's it's like you're watching like a powerpoint presentation um because and then you've got this this music over the top and it it's hard it's it's really hard to follow not to follow because i'm familiar with the story it's really hard to give it my attention so if you really like silent movies there is a silent movie of the phantom of the opera if you're into that kind of thing definitely go check it out but for me it was it was really hard um maybe because i've seen other adaptations that might have been part of it as well but it's it's interesting i think the timeline where this this was published in 1910 and it was you know they weren't making tons and tons of movies like they do now but it was a studio felt that this was a good enough story to ad- adapt to the screen in 1925 when film was still you know still in the early stages i mean we this is again 1925 so it's almost is 95 years ago um at this point but it's fine if you like silent movies this is maybe one to check out not for me there are other adaptations that i enjoy more but Jacob, you're going to tell us a little bit about the 1943 movie. Right. So the 1943 version was the version that I had first seen. Pretty sure I saw it before I saw the stage production. And um, and definitely, definitely before I had read the book or seen the 2004 version. It's strange. It's very much a suspense yeah. thriller sort of take on The Phantom of the Opera. And I think at this point, the Phantom himself was still somewhat being treated as if he were one of the classic monsters, such as, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, werewolf, invisible man, the mummy, etc. But it just never really feels that way. And so, Aaron, you'll have to tell me because you've seen the silent film and you've seen it recently. Do you feel like the Phantom is treated as if he were a classic monster? Yeah, classic monster just like in that same category and that may be why they made a movie of it in 1925 because you know boris karloff's frankenstein was around the same time i believe yeah that absolutely could be the case uh our listeners please if you are film history buffs by all means sort of correct us on those dates we're making some assumptions we're speculating here but i i think aaron and i both agree that the phantom in these earlier productions, these earlier film productions, mm-hmm. sort of feels quite different and is treated quite differently as a character. He's some type of monster. Right. You don't know if he's a ghost, right? I mean, he's called the Phantom, right? I mean, pretty clear right there in the title. But the idea being that there's something otherworldly, there's something supernatural about the Phantom and his obsession with the Opera House. I think a lot of that does stem from Gothic literature. The gothic literature that I am familiar with very much has to do with this, you know, the idea of haunting, what it means for something or, you know, something supernatural or some person to haunt a specific location mm-hmm. or a specific person. And that haunting is usually related to obsession, jealousy, betrayal, revenge, right? And the Phantom of the Opera is rife with those themes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> This is where I think starting from 1986 on, we get this different perception. And I'd love, you know, listeners, like I said, if you know more about this, please, you know, respond to us on our Twitter and and let us know. I feel like there's sort of this shift in terms of who the Mm -hmm. Phantom really is. 
And we know from the novel that the Phantom really isn't a ghost, right? That sort of his ghostly identity is questioned throughout the book, but it is revealed that he is a human being with a horribly disfigured face, that his parents never loved him. He ran away and joined the circus and the fair where he was treated horribly for for a super long time before he came to the opera house and uh, Mm -hmm. someone took pity on him and let him live there. But we know right, that right. he is he is a human, right? And I think that the 1986 and the 2004 versions don't necessarily ever right. redeem him as a person. I mean, he is awful. He has murdered people. He's not a good person by any means. But in those versions of the Phantom, he becomes a human, right? And this is, I think, coming back to the novel and sort of moving away from the classic monster right. rendition of who he is. We know that the Phantom has a name. His name is Eric, by the way. Spoilers, I'm sorry. But his name is Eric, right? And he has a past, and he has a strange existence within the opera house, and he has been dehumanized, you know, through these rumors, but and he has also done things that are awful. So he becomes this complicated, complex, and compelling character, right, in this sense. Now, in the 1986 and in the 2004 versions, you have this man who is, you know, preying on the, a vulnerable young woman in an opera house, and that is full of problems as well, right? And there's plenty of creepy factor happening there. But I do think those versions do move him out of the realm of sort of a classic monster right. to a complex character. Mm-hmm. That that sort of transition is really in part due to the adaptation of the novel into the stage musical. I think the stage musical tries to elicit some sense of pity and humanity in the Phantom where that is not allowed in the novel or the classic monster renditions of the Phantom, which helps makes this adaption that much more compelling. You think there was, it was better to adapt in the later editions that we have in 1986 and 2004 where they moved away from that monster, uh, that classic monster feel, and moved more towards the, the like the broken man, the like the I don't want to say antihero, but the 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 humanized version of the Phantom. Yeah, and I I honestly think that the adaptations that we have in from nineteen eighty six and two thousand four, they ultimately make for a more compelling story overall, yeah. right? And like I said, Eric is never necessarily vindicated or redeemed. No, he's not. As, you know, the gothic antagonist, he is satisfied, satiated. What's the word I'm looking for? He's placated so that he no longer is a threat, right? Yeah. You know, and he sort of comes to terms with what he is doing is wrong, right? And I think that is interesting, but there's no true, I feel like, redemption for him necessarily. There's no reintegration of who he is as a person back into society. Definitely. So if I could sum up your thoughts there, that the creative choices made in the adapted versions paid off. Well, this has been a great discussion. I've been I've been excited all day for this one. And uh, it's it really has lived up to what I was hoping. 